This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. Friday, December 21st, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and it's all about the wall. And I mean all, though I might not mean the wall. The president was elected as a candidate of the Republicans with the backing of Republicans. He governed with the assistance of Republicans and pretty much no Democrats, and he adhered mostly to the tenets of Republicanism. This has been our understanding all along. It's not really the case. He doesn't really care about the things Republicans care about. I mean, he cares about himself, but on issues, he really only really cares about one thing, one tangible thing, as opposed to a concept like winning or strength. He cares about immigration, and he doesn't really care about immigration. I mean, he doesn't really care about solving the issue. He really cares about showing force and conveying strength on immigration. And his audience is, of course, people who are very angry and in their anger, easy to dupe. So what was famously and brazenly and loudly a wall that Mexico was going to pay for has become something else. You know, it was a great slogan because the wall is so tangible and Mexico payment makes it so free. It's tough policy because there is no wall, which is really easy to discern if you look and it's not there. And of course, Mexico ain't going to pay for it. So he can't do much about the Mexico not paying for it part, except lie. He has tried to lie. He said that renegotiating NAFTA equals Mexico paying for it. Clearly doesn't. But what he does do about the absence of the wall is a couple things. He has tried rebranding that wall as steel slats. Those words, just like the slats themselves, ain't going nowhere, literally and figuratively, and I mean figuratively, literally. But just as the wall has become indefinite, the article the before the wall as a definite article also needs to be attacked. No wall, no duh, but also no the. One thing that I, I do have to say is uh, tremendous amounts of wall have already been built. The president even has his Homeland Security secretary saying wall under oath in front of Congress. From Congress, I would ask for wall. We need wall. Wall has become totemic and absolute. Wall is to the Trumps what Christ is to the Christians. And if you cast doubt on the claim about the central tenet of the faith having risen, then you're a heretic. Wall the merciful, wall the redeemer, wall the king. But wall does more when you think about it, then just define the central figure in the Trump theocracy. Wall also provides action. I mean, the wall led to angry conservative blowback. The wall, the wall, whenever he's in trouble, he just yells the wall. Um, but there are, I think, increasingly fewer of his supporters who are believing it. You know, they say when LBJ lost Cronkite, he knew he lost America. When Trump lost Coulter, Trump lost his mind because he engaged in a Twitter tirade against the deal in Congress. He announced a Syrian pullout. He alienated and forced the removal of his secretary of defense, and he boxed himself into a no-win situation, all because of wall. 
retreated, retweeted, lied that we succeeded. So in that sense, and given that there are so many verbs attached to wall, wall's not like Christ. Wall is like Smurf to the Smurfs. It is them, but it also describes their acts. He walls himself off, and he builds walls against good counsel. Like the Smurfs smurf themselves, some smurfing Smurf berries. You're absolutely right, absolutely. But Smurfs are cute and lovable, and one of them is brainy, so Wall is to Trump, not exactly as Smurf is to Smurf. You know what Wall is? Wall is the Force. Wall is the Force in Star Wars. Wall is the force from Star Wars. It's an all-binding power. It's what gives a Jedi his abilities. It's an energy field created by all living things. It penetrates us and surrounds us. Only Wall doesn't surround us or doesn't surround them and therefore doesn't surround us. Wall is not the Christ to Christians. It's not the Smurf to Smurfs. It is not the force to Jedi. The relationship that Trump and Ann Coulter and Kirsten Nielsen and all those steel slat sirens have with the wall is most like the relationship that zombies have with... Wall. Must have wall. Need wall. It's sad, really, when you think about it. and It's almost human. On today's show... The last show, by the way, before we take a few days off, but not all the days off next week, I spiel about faith fitting for the season. But first, he's a stand-up and a storyteller, and now a Broadway star. Can we say star? Well, it's a one-man show. It's on Broadway. He has all the lines, and it's gotten really good reviews. So Mike Berbiglia is a star, and the name of the show is, well, normally I'd say it here, and then we take a little break, and then I'd say it again. But what we did is we did one of those rolling intros that are so popular on comedy podcasts. Does it work here? This is a more formal setting. I like to do proper intros. But as long as we're just saying wall, let's eschew intro. After this break, you will hear from Mike Berbiglia, literally up next. Not me talking about Mike, but actual Mike. I feel I may have overexplained what really is a quite common interview format on podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Basically, if people haven't seen the new one, it's at my show on Broadway and it's um, the gist of it, the gist, um, is that the, I didn't do that on purpose. The, uh, first half is, um, an, a massive argument, elaborate argument for why no one should ever have a child. And the second <laughs> half of the show is I had a child. Here's why I was right. And the ending, which I never reveal, uh, in interviews because I want people to experience it is how that, that can turn on itself. Yes. In an emotional way. So in your in the beginning of the show, which are funny arguments about We're gonna talk be, before the end we'll talk about the Olive Garden, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we'll great. get to it all. So because <laughs> that was significant for me. <laughs> and the, when you're doing the I don't want a kid jokes, there there are those they're not jokes, 
per se, their yeah. observations. But there's that humor out there. There's that sentiment out there. And I think most of the time, the comedian will say it and will get a laugh based on a little bit of discomfort or what a transgression. I can't believe the True. comedian is, True. especially if it's a female Absolutely. comedian complaining about kids. But you're not doing that. No, no, it's yeah. completely legitimate. I mean, I say I have all these physical ailments. I, I've, um, I don't feel like I experience joy in my life. I feel like I... Why would I want to hand that off to a child? Like, I, it's it's how I felt from jump. I feel like I felt like that since I was a kid. I never wanted to have a kid. So that's called anhedonia, isn't it? I, you know, that's, I, you know, Woody Allen coined or made that pop, popularized that in Annie Hall. Yeah. Um, yeah, the inability to feel joy. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But do you really have it? You find, yeah, you can I don't see know. that things are funny. You laugh with friends, don't you? Do you think Absolutely. laughter and joy aren't that correlated? I feel enjoy doing the show. I mean, I'm like David Letterman. I like I always would say about Letterman that he enjoyed the the hour a day he was on, yeah. on television. Yeah, and the rest of the day is miserable. Right. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's uh. I, I'm not that extreme. Um. And actually, like the time that I spend with my wife and daughter is phenomenal. Like that. That's I'm very happy when I'm with them. But, you know, yeah, I mean, you know how it is. It's ups and downs. Life is just challenging. It's challenging for everybody. It's, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a comedian or a construction worker or, or, or an RN. You know, life's hard. I think we have to come up with one other go-to profession when we make those analogies. Like a tax abatement guy. I thought RN was pretty good. That was pretty good. But maybe like <laughs> a nod to 2018, someone who works with the cloud. Right. Like an Amazon. Some right. tech. If you, develop tech an, job. if you develop apps. Yeah. Like an app you're guy. an app designer. Yeah, whether you're a comedian or working in the salt yeah, yeah, mines. No, I know. Or an app guy. Yeah. Maybe you're right. It doesn't sing. <laughs> <laughs> or you're one of those app guys. <laughs> yeah, the sil- yeah, the Silicon Valley professions. Holy cow. And I'm not a topical person, but... Silicon Valley is not yeah. feeling good right now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of mind-boggling because I feel like for the last decade, at least, they've been the titans of American industry and everyone's been like, oh, the best thing that you can aspire to be is a technological god and Sheryl Sandberg and, and the guy, whatever, is, uh, people just love them. Yeah. And then now it's really crashing. And it's funny because it took the other industries, it, it took a while for us to turn around on them, right? It took yes. it took Ralph Nader writing expose and he has to, you know, write unsafe at any speed. And then you figure out that one thing about the Corvair and then gradually over time, right. the information accumulates and we get this idea that maybe Exxon's not great. But what did the internet do? What did these technology companies do? They convinced us and made us and habituated us to this really, really quick turnaround. Yeah. So man- because of what they did, within like three months, it's all gone south on all the tech companies. One of the more significant things was when Tim Cook said in an interview that he wouldn't let his kids have an iPhone till they're 15. Yeah. Here's my prediction for the uh-huh. future, and I think I think about this all the time. The moment that the Sony hacks happened, the moment Sony hacks happened, I just go, everyone's emails are done. Yeah. That's my prediction. My prediction is in the next five years, all everyone's emails that have ever been written will be open to the public and um, they'll be hacked, and they'll be open-sourced. And I'll meet you. I'll go, oh, hey, I wonder what Mike emailed about that has the word mm-hmm. sex in it. Mm-hmm. And then I'll see all your emails. I personal have a large collection emails of sextants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that have had the word sex in it. And um, I think that's the future. Yeah. What do you think? Do you I think agree- that that could happen? I agree with you. And knowing that, predicting that, I've begun larding my emails with really, really— 
magnificent sentiments that reflect well on me if someone found That's out about hilarious. it. That's hilarious. I've begun saying really non-racist and non-sexist things, like, very vocally. I'll say, I don't want to say this on the show, but man, does racism bother me. But you know, by the way, that's hilarious. <laughs> by the way, when that, if and when that happens, yeah. it will wipe out all of everyone's offenses, basically. You can't go after everybody mm-hmm. all at once. Mm-hmm. You can selectively go after people. I yeah. mean, there's, I think, an interesting analogy to your idea. Once everything's out there, maybe it leavens. Right. There's a leavening, right. which is a guy like Howard Stern talking about masturbation 20 years ago. Yeah, right? th- yeah. And it was shocking. Huge thing. But then everyone's like, wait a minute. We all do this. Right, right, right. right? That's right. Okay. But then, you know, maybe something about porn. Like he starts talking about porn. And then right. it's like, we all do this. But then <laughs> there's the part where you're like, oh, we all <laughs> do this. Even further. And you say the reference to the octopus porn and you're still the goddamn freak. Right. So maybe. Right. We- the line is like child yes. porn. The line is like whatever. Right. The thing where you go, no fucking way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe there's something like that that will happen in this moment. That's right. And, and, uh. I think it would, to, to pull it back to, to, to my show, the new one, people ask me all the time, how are you comfortable saying these really embarrassing things on stage? And yeah. very personal, very close to the bone. And, and I say, people think they're keeping secrets, but they're not. We're, we all think that we're, we have this front and that we're, we're hiding these things. And everybody knows. Yeah. Like, you don't know, I don't know exactly what your peccadillo is. But I could guess five, and probably two are right. And it doesn't, you know what I mean? It's like, it doesn't matter. You just do the demographic profile. On <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Size me up. <laughs> but I think that that's true of everyone. I yeah. think you can probably assess pretty much what everyone's peccadillo is to some extent, and you're sort of half right or a third right. And it doesn't matter. And so when I'm on stage saying, like, I, when I was 23, I went to the red light district, and, like, it's really embarrassing, and I never went again. And it's like, people go, yeah. And, and I, meanwhile, I'm thinking... Like, this is the most embarrassing thing I've ever said. Right. Nobody's really that shocked by it in in some in a certain way. Then again, is there something about the context of you're clearly this performer in a Broadway show and we should give some latitude to you. If people were to debate your ethics in a different form, maybe you'd come off worse. Maybe it would be like, how could you listen to this Mike Birbiglia guy? He's he um he's been with prostitutes. Right. Yeah. A prostitute. <laughs> just, just to be clear, just to go on the record. Um, but, uh, but, but, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, if, no. Of course, I'm contextualizing my own story mm-hmm. for the audience. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, when you came into the show, you went to Olive Garden. It's so funny because super. How much did it cost only. you? What did it cost you? Well, here's what I did. Uh, my girlfriend, she ate like a normal person, and I just had the, I, I said, the bottomless bowl of soup. Is it technically bottomless bowls of soup? Oh, my God, Can you're I such switch? an asshole. Can I switch breeds you're of soup? such a horrible person. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, totally. I mean, you're terrible. This I, is, a, this is this. like the mark of like, the. I've been a, I was a waiter a lot for a lot of years. You're like the worst customer. I did the soup is sampler. Is it technically bottomless? <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so so, you did soup and salad. I did, bottomless. Yeah, I did. And all I did was soup, and I had three or four different kinds of soup. It was a great— Have you a, no shame. I'm going to coin a phrase. Have you no shame. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> I tipped well, but only as a percentage of the very small bill. And that's bill. garbage. Yeah. That's garbage. You yeah. have to tip based on what it should have been. What it should have been if I wasn't a horrible <laughs> human. <laughs> so, so the Olive Garden's right down the street from my theater— 
What <laughs> we're, we're in an interesting block, by the way. We got the Olive Garden. This we is got Springsteen. We got on the other side Fox News, and yes. then we got Rockefeller Center. Yes. And talk about like ends of the spectrum. Talk about like, range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like this, I always say, like we're right. You know, Springsteen and Fox News, like between born in the USA and we think we're the USA. <laughs> and, and and then the other observation I made recently about Rock Center and Fox News. Even if I loved Fox News, I would still make this burn on Fox News. You know, if you're going to say there's a war on Christmas, don't have a shitty Christmas tree. (laughs) They have the shittiest, lamest, like, it's made of, like, lights that are probably made in Taiwan. It's not even a real tree. Across the street, there's a fucking 94-foot Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center that you couldn't even, in your wildest dreams, imagine even existed on the planet. You think you're better at Christmas than those motherfuckers? You are so wrong. Put up or shut up, Fox News. Uh, it's war on Christmas bullshit. It's like, honestly, if you guys are so good at Christmas, be good at Christmas. Yeah. You, Jesus. And who would and who would Fox News say is the worst at Christmas? NBC, NBC. and MSNBC. They're the worst. Yeah. I honestly, I want to. I don't want to go on Fox News because ultimately they'll do all their tricks where they lower your microphone and all these things You'll to make you put look- a Chiron under you. You know. <laughs> Sympathizes with the Taliban. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but I do want airtime for for four seconds on their air, just saying like, you guys, if you're so into Christmas, why don't you show it? Yeah, that it would be worth if you do a live segment where they can't cut you out. Yeah, it would be worth saying yes, and then you take all the horrible. Uh, oh, calumny. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to yeah, get involved with that it. horror. So I have, you know, I have written down the uh, intro I was going to say before okay, we did great. the rolling start, which is uh, maybe this will help uh, the audience if they're wondering what the new one's about. Yeah. Mike Birbiglia once said that watching two high school kids make out is like <laughs> watching a dog eat spaghetti and not in the lady in the tramp way. Maybe you've heard him tell stories of bombing at a cancer charity dinner and getting hit by a drunk driver, but then also getting blamed for being the one who wasn't drunk. And maybe you said, well, that was hilarious and enjoyable, but also free and easy to listen to on This American Life. Is there a way to experience such comedic insights at a higher price point? There is. It is Mike Birbiglia's new show, new Broadway show, the new one. So would that have been a good intro? This interview's over. Yeah. Put that, <laughs> put that there. I want to counter that okay. but, but by just saying, like, yeah, sure, it's a higher price point. But, like, but it's... Uh, I believe the theater is one of the last remaining uh, art forms where we are all present at the same time. Yes. And that that's special. Like, there's this thing where there's this moment in the show where I wanted to talk about milestones and, and uh, our daughter's milestones. And I said to Jen, like, I need help with this piece. And she goes, um, well, here's a poem I wrote about Una's first time crawling. And I read it. And I go, fuck. <laughs> Can I just read this yeah. on stage? She goes, yeah. That's where uh, that's what my wife does. That that impressive. My wife's a poet, and she's a credited writer on my show, and and that's how I started reading poems in the show because I wanted her perspective to be in the show. But if she's able to say it in poetry in nineteen words, as opposed to me saying it comedically in forty five words, I'd much rather have the nineteen. Do you think in this show, your wife as a character? Um, is less perfect than she has been in your other shows or stories or stand-up. Yeah, I think she's more complex because she's a she's a collab- official collaborator. And so, I mean, I don't want to get too to give too much away, but in certain ways, like in in real life, she admits to this. She you know she went back on 
a thing which was essentially saying, like, the baby's not going to change the way we live our lives. And then, you know, and in real life, and I don't go into this in the show, but, like, I was like, I can only have a a kid if we're going to have babysitters and nannies and people who are going to help because I can't. I know myself. This is part of the reason I never want to have a kid. I know myself. I know I'm not good at this. Um, And so if we get babysitters and nannies and professionals, I'm a director. I'm a movie director. I hire gaffers. I hire cinematographers. I hire designers. I know how to hire. I could delegate her childhood. I can delegate her childhood. (laughs) And uh, and Jen said, "Yeah, that's fine." And then when we and then we had one, she she goes, "I can't. I can't give her a baby. I just can't." Yeah. And of course, and then you can't uh, you can't argue with that. Yes. What are you going to argue with that? Right. The mother must give up the child. Yeah. But I do think that she's a presence in your past uh, stuff. Yes. But she was always the one who was right and sensible. That's correct. And being a moral voice of reason. Mm -hmm. And here, what you just said about how she so fundamentally got this basic thing wrong, it's really the first time that she's been really wrong that I know of in one of your No, I think that's right. Yeah. And I'm, and and (laughs) tit for tat, I'm very very wrong in this show. <laughs> but you do that a lot. Way, yeah, yeah, but yeah. this one way more than the other ones. <laughs> right. Mike Birbiglia is the everything behind the new <laughs> one, which is we don't normally give out discount codes for non-paying sponsors. But, you know, we love This American Life. So if you go to thislife.org, oh, wow. yeah, you get a good discount wow. to go see the new one on Broadway through January. Through January 20th. How about that? Yeah. All right. Thank you, Mike. Thanks Thank for coming. Thank you. In. Thanks, Mike. Hi. You're listening to The Gist right now. But do you ever wish you could get more of it? Are you that insane? Well, maybe not more in the audio form, but in the written form. We've got just the thing, The Gist's Saturday newsletter. Every issue has links to the best stuff that I've been reading, listening to, and watching, plus the answer to our on-air trivia question and links to every episode in case you missed any. It's a good way to organize the week. Sign up now at Slate.com slash Gist News. That is Slate.com slash Gist News. And we'll see you in your email inbox every Saturday. Offers to appear in your email inbox are figurative only. And now the spiel. There was a time when you used to be able to have an argument. Could be a good argument. I'll give you an example. Resolved. Toxic stress is a real and falsifiable phenomenon which contributes to a variety of bad health outcomes. I'd like to have that argument. Can be a bad argument. Resolved, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Don't care. Don't care who wins. Fine movie. Let's stop debating about Christmas. But, you know, those are arguments. Sides were taken. Theses were professed. Ideas were exchanged. It's not like during these arguments there wasn't lying or dishonesty or bias or any number of logical fallacies that are common to argumentation. You know, there are the offside penalties or the pass interferences or the roughing the quarterbacks in the rough and tumble bowl game of debates. But now another element has become far more common. It's pretty ubiquitous. It is declaring the other side of not being wrong or daft or misguided or in error, but accusing the other side of operating in bad faith. We're not saying their cornerback expertly defended the pass. We're not even saying, hey, the cornerback held the receiver on the line of scrimmage. We're saying they're faking an injury or they're pretending the touchdown that we all saw that happen didn't happen. They're breaking the rules and not even the rules that we know exist and sometimes get broken. They're cheating about cheating. This 
is the bad faith argument. For a very long time, the budget deficit has been this kind of like theoretical issue that like naggy scolds talk about a lot, that Republicans deploy in bad faith. The New York Times hired Sarah Jong, who writes for The Verge, or did write for The Verge, for its editorial board, and then some bad faith actors combed through her old tweets. We'll talk about those tweets in a second. There's so many imputations of bad faith and cynicism flying back and forth in this. There are so many. In fact, I just played a few. So before that last one, who uh, that was Ross Douthat of the New York Times, you heard Brian Curtis of the Ringer's Press Box podcast, and he used bad faith to mean that critics were out to get Sarah Jung by pretending to be offended by her arguments. Although I think what was really happening, if you remember that story, is that people were out to get Sarah Jung because they were offended by her arguments. They weren't pretending. Matt Iglesias of the Weeds used the bad faith argument to mean something like hypocrisy when it came to Republicans and deficits. And now here's Commentary Magazine's Noah Rothman describing opponents of Brett Kavanaugh as operating in bad faith, by which I think he means that their ends justify their means. In the grassroots where the debate is entirely bad faith. Or maybe Rothman was just saying that the backers of Christine Blasey Ford said they believe Christine Blasey Ford, but maybe they were just saying it to be opportunistic. Bad faith sometimes means dishonest argument. Sometimes it means espousing a principle that the argumentor himself or herself violates. Sometimes it just means, I don't want to hear your bullshit no more. I'm not here to give you a strict definition of bad faith argument. There are different definitions for different fields. When I use it, and I try not to use it a lot for reasons I'll get into, but when I use it and I say bad faith argument, I usually mean that the arguer doesn't even believe their own argument. Example, someone asserting state rights to explain why abortion should not be legal after, you know, a day and a half. Listen, it's not about abortions. It's about Mississippi. The people of Mississippi understand the citizens of Mississippi. We have to defer to Mississippi when it comes to laws like that. All right, so you're fine with Manhattan's gun laws? Oh, no, Second Amendment, you libtard. See, that would be revealing that the state's argument argument is a bad faith argument. In order to figure out what most people mean when they say bad faith argument, let's take a listen to what they mean when they credit an argument as being in good faith. That that debunking achieved for some partisan reasons and also for some reasons, good faith reasons, um, outsized import. The people who are struggling to have a good faith, honest conversation about complex social problems are at every moment being threatened with having the worst possible interpretation. I've heard that argument a couple of times, and I'm always sort of, I mean, I believe that you believe that, but you're the first person I've heard make that argument that I actually believe it's made in good faith. So the first clip was David French using good faith argument essentially to mean nonpartisan. Then Sam Harris used it to mean uh, something like open to criticism. And finally, there is Ross Duthut, who looms large in consideration of faith and arguments and there, therefore shows up as the person who Michelle Goldberg was crediting with a good faith argument. And that was from the New York Times Argument podcast. Goldberg uses the definition that most adheres to my definition, the definition that most people use, meaning I think you're saying this because you actually believe it. And that's actually why I choose not to say or describe arguments as bad faith so often. Sometimes I will tell someone that I'm debating, well, I think you're making a good faith argument. And why I do that is uh, it establishes a bond. 
It's saying, I respect you and I hear you. Although when you think about it, a snarkier way of saying that is something like, you know, I believe you believe that. This profusion of labeling arguments has become more common, I believe, because we do not often think that people on the other side could possibly even buy into what they are saying. As we become less and less familiar with people making those arguments, we are maybe just confused or we don't come across those arguments often or it's so much easier to think there's no way that anyone believes that. It's a way of saying, do you believe this guy? No, I don't. I don't know that 30 years ago, debates had less of an element of not even believing the other person, but all the tools of modern disputation conspire to allow us to question motivation. And I don't think that's a good thing. In fact, successfully questioning a person's status to make an argument, that is seen as a key debating tactic. Oh, you're just saying that because of your wealth or your race or your privilege, etc. The one I get is, oh, you're just saying that to be contrarian. No, I'm actually stating my beliefs, and perhaps they're contrary to the positions you think I should be taking. We too quickly question the machinations behind an argument rather than just tackle the argument. So here's what I do. One thing is, if I see an argument in bad faith, I try not to engage with it at all. But if I have to, I'm ecumenical. I don't dwell on the argument's faith. I try to tackle the argument. If it's in bad faith, i.e. the stated position is belied, by the inconsistencies or hypocrisies of the arguer or argument, well, that's a good point. You should use that point. It will make the other argument seem really weak. Also, if the argument is in bad faith, it's usually bad in other ways. You ever notice no argument that we agree with is ever in bad faith? But logically, a bunch of arguments that seem to help our side, we should be able to step aside and say, wait a minute, that's actually in bad faith, even though it helps us. We never say that. Too often, bad faith argument just means bad argument. So you know what we should say? We should say that's a bad argument. And we should also keep the faith. That's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. They've been smurfing you these podcasts every smurfing day for the whole smurfing year. TJ Raphael is Slate's senior producer of podcasts. You know how podcasts work? I'll tell you how they work. Midichlorians. The Gist. If you signed up for the newsletter at slate.com slash gistnews, it will be in your inbox Saturday morning. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter, why don't you? Slate.com slash gistnews. Merry Christmas, good Boxing Day, and we'll see you the next day, which is, of course, the anti-penultimate weekday of 2018. Do you need translation? It's Thursday. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.